Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehell. Before we begin with today's subject, a quick word about patron saints. By definition in Old Farmer's Wikipedia, a patron saint is an entity in certain religions that is regarded as a heavenly advocate of a nation, place, craft, activity, class, clan, family, or person. In other words, someone or something that is chosen to be a protector in a given category. We mention this because back when they were still a website, JumpTheShark.com gave the title of patron saint to one person. Someone who, despite at least one or two exceptions to the rule, had a coincidental knack for appearing in TV shows long past its prime. Sure, the shows managed to stay on for a few years longer, but that might have been a coincidence. Point is, that person was given the title of Jump the Shark's official patron saint, and his name was, and still is, Ted McGinley. He has nothing to do with this story, but hopefully you see where we're going with this. Even hell, let alone telehell, has its constant figures, whether it be three-headed hounds, lakes of fire, or even our nine circles. But even more constant than that is a being or entity that will more than likely give us a great chunk of our output around here. Someone who was a revered figure in the world of television, yet for all of his successes, still managed to even them out by either being wholly responsible for or lending a hand to some of the biggest bombs in TV history. And despite some of his best efforts, you just know that discussion of this being would not be complete if we didn't take a closer look at some of them. And if he ever listens to us by accident, please know that we say all of this both with love and in jest, and not to sick any high-priced lawyers on us. Please. Ladies and gentlemen, we would like to introduce you to the patron saint of Telehell, known to some as the man with the golden gut. We present Fred Silverman. In the 1970s, Silverman was synonymous with being a paradigm shifter in the world of television. First at CBS, where as entertainment president, he famously purged the network's lineup of family-friendly, rural programming and replaced most of the lineup with shows that appeared to a more adult audience, up to and including Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, Kojak, Sonny and Cher, MASH, and about 72 bajillion shows Norman Lear created. By the middle of the decade, he took his talents over to ABC which, since its inception, was seen as something of and also ran among the broadcast networks. Silverman's golden touch helped spawn such hits as Laverne and Shirley, Three's Company, Donnie and Marie, and approximately 82 squillion shows from producer Aaron Spelling, one of which really stuck in Silverman's mind. The Love Boat was as simple a concept as you could get on television. Guest stars would intermingle with each other as the crew of the ship kept tabs on what was going on. Sometimes it was funny. Sometimes there was drama. But each episode ultimately ended with... 
In 1978, after achieving the success of bringing two TV networks to first place, Silverman sought to complete the trifecta. RCA, then the parent company of NBC, hired Silverman to run the entire network and perhaps save it from the mounting oblivion it found itself in since the start of the decade. Not just the entertainment division like at the other two networks, but also run daytime, late night, news, sports, radio, you name it. Clearly, this looked to be a more daunting task than just running one division. But Silverman was not to be deterred. His first major move upon joining the network was something that was actually considered common among TV executives. That of canceling practically all of his predecessors' primetime lineup and workforce, and replacing everything with his own team and their ideas. Or, as it became known in some circles, the slaughter on 6th Avenue. By the time the fall of 1978 rolled around, Silverman's vision for the network was clear. Unfortunately, either because Silverman and his crew were all too eager to get things going, or because of bad luck and timing, or perhaps the famous Golden Gut was getting a case of tarnished indigestion, practically every new show that debuted during that fall wound up getting the axe by January of 1979, save for different strokes which debuted far later that fall. Simply put, Despite what few successes the network had to brag about, NBC saw no sign of recovering from its continued downfall. And under Silverman's watch, the continuing failures of the network went from folly to fiasco. But then, one day, Silverman got an idea. One that was derived from the success of one of the shows from one of his previous networks. But little did he realize that because of this program, an entire TV network nearly got derailed and instead got catapulted into the switch house of Telehill. Now, before we go even further, we should probably clarify that although Silverman was the president of the network at the time this happened, the show we're about to discuss was actually already in pre-production by the time he officially joined the network in 1978. But perhaps because of the enthusiasm felt surrounding the project, that regardless of when and who was ultimately responsible for the show, Silverman would ultimately take the heat for it. Still though, we have to give credit where credit's due. The show was created by writers Earl Wallace and Don Westlake. The actual pitch for the program was made by a Mr. Paul Klein, who was NBC's head of programming at the time. Klein's pitch was as much simplistic as it was convoluted. It was the goings-on of a nuclear-powered train that transported its passengers from New York City to Los Angeles over the course of 36 hours. This train would be loaded with guest stars each with unique stories that are carefully woven with the exploits of the train's crew in a combination of comedy, mystery, and drama. What really piqued Silverman's interest was the notion that the show was essentially being billed as the love boat on rails. Realizing just how popular that show had been for ABC, Silverman thought he could capture lightning in a bottle twice for the peacock. And without giving so much as a second thought or even raising a follow-up question or two, Silverman 
realizing how dire the network's fortunes were by the end of 1978, decided to further advance the leisure-suited Orient Express for the mid-season of 1979. And to add icing to the cake, the network itself would be the primary production company for the show, meaning that if it failed, a lot of lost house money would be on the line. The other person to blame was the man that Fred hired to oversee the production, Dan Curtis, who gained fame by creating and producing the classic gothic soap opera Dark Shadows and cult classic detective series The Night Stalker. After a stint of producing and directing various low-budget horror movies for TV, Curtis was given the task to oversee a different kind of horror show, one with a train that was so large that it required two tracks in order for it to move across the country. So large was the train that it was able to include amenities that one could find on a cruise ship, not unlike the love boat. Things like a dining room and a lounge, of course, but also a disco, a swimming pool, a workout center, a hair salon, and a ballroom. And saying this out loud, we realize what your next question is. How can a train, a transporter that is in constant motion, have these amenities and not worry about its patrons getting into some sort of accident thanks to the laws of Newtonian motion? That's a very good question. Before you answer that, let me remind you of one thing this train has that the love boat doesn't. It's nuclear-powered engine that enables the train to travel at speeds of up to 200 miles an hour. That just raises further questions! We won't bore you with all the details on how actual trains are supposed to travel at given speeds, because we're not the NTSB. But for now, let's just say that the short answer to both of those questions is that, at the end of the day, it's just a TV show. Granted, it's a highly fantastical one that was created in the never-ending coke-fueled fever dream that was the late 1970s, so trust us when we say that even though the train is at ground level, you may need to suspend your disbelief to the levels of zero gravity. Which brings us to just how much money was going to be needed in order to properly execute this vision. Bearing in mind, the late 70s were one of the worst periods in history when it came to anything financial, especially with constant threats of inflation and recessions. Still, though, not unlike John Hammond at Jurassic Park, this show spared no expense in trying to make this fantasy a reality, even going so far as to include various detailings that the average viewer would never bother to care about. These little bits of minutiae added up to what was then the single biggest price tag in TV history, just for set design. Six million dollars. Or exactly one budget for Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Adjusted for inflation as of this recording, the value jumps up to north of $22 million, or enough to make three and a half more sequels to The Room. Everything else, including operational costs, crew pay, and cast salaries, cost the production an additional $1 million per episode, or $3.7 million in 2019 money. When you add all the figures together, this means that when all was said and done, the entire run of the show cost NBC a total of $15 million, or $52.9 million in today's money. To say nothing of how much NBC sunk into advertising the hell out of this show during that year's Super Bowl. But since we don't know that part of the budget, we'll show them a little mercy there. Let's just presume that it, too, was a lot. Speaking of the cast, what cast? Remember, this was NBC in last place in the 1970s. Although they had very minimal success elsewhere on the schedule, they weren't going to get another Gavin McCloud to be the conductor. That job fell to veteran character actor Edward Andrews, 
who would later find fame for uttering this famous line. Dong! Where is my automobile? Automobile? <laughs> Other cast members would pretty much be a who's who of that guy who was in that thing, including future Sledgehammer co-star Harrison Page as the train's porter, Robert Alda, father to Alan, playing the train's doctor, and future Mr. Belvedere mother Eileen Graff as the show's equivalent to Lauren Tweez. Although, spoiler alert, she wouldn't show up until the show's retooling halfway through the run. As for the guest stars on The Maiden Voyage, well, they weren't quite love boat caliber, but feel free to ask your great-grandparents who Steve Lawrence, Keenan Wynn, and Dandy Don Meredith were if you're looking for context. We don't have all day. In spite of a number of technical difficulties behind the scenes, including an actual derailment of one of the show's models of the giant train, Silverman wanted this creature from the Amtrak Lagoon to leave the station just in time for February sweeps. With the rush production in full gear and a giant promotional blitz during that year's Super Bowl, Conductor Silverman called for the all aboard. Good morning, Houston, Texas. This is today, Wednesday, February 7th. And if you're in South Texas, be grateful you're not in Washington, D.C. at this hour. There's a snowstorm underway in the nation's capital, and the only things moving may be farmers staging demonstrations on their tractors. On the morning of the show's debut, NBC's Today Show pretty much telegraphed the concerns we just laid out for you. But because it was the network that aired the show, they decided to cover the premiere and behind-the-scenes info with kid gloves. Usually when we do a piece about a new television program going on the air, we come and interview the star of it. Well, we can't do that in this case because, as many critics have said, the star of this new show is a train. It's not even a real train. Though a lot of money has been spent to make it look real, it exists only here in the sound stages at MGM, where set designers build it at enormous cost. To build this elaborate mock-up, a train going nowhere, 250 workers labored in shifts around the clock for three months. All that manpower and overtime got to be frightfully expensive. The program, if it doesn't work, could be canceled after 13 weeks. As the storyline has it, the super train is atomic-powered, replete with an onboard swimming pool, disco, what have you. It can go 200 miles an hour, which means if somebody popped out of a hatch at full speed, it'd be blown away. And they've got the special effect for that, too. We're going to put a pin in that scene for a moment because, trust me, this is worthy of mentioning for all the wrong reasons. That said, I think we've kept you in suspense long enough. As Mr. Brokaw said, February 7th, 1979. Still another blizzard was barreling up the East Coast, just as disco continued to barrel its way on the music charts. And at 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Central and Mountain, we open on a board meeting being run by Keenan Wynn. The meeting in question could very well have doubled as a metaphor for NBC's programming at that time. You know what I think, Winfield. You're letting your psychotic fascination with railroads lead you into a suicidal gamble with the future of this company. So you think it's a gamble, eh? Well, gentlemen, since I can count my remaining years on the fingers of one hand, from my point of view, it's not much of a gamble at all. And with that reassurance, gentlemen, I give you... Super Train! And before we go any further, further, keep in mind that this was a two-hour pilot. So we're going to try our damnedest to keep things short for you. 
There will be some details that we feel are not important to the story or the production, so don't give us any what about this scene kind of feedback. Trust us, we know what we're doing. Unlike NBC, who clearly did not. Over the course of the first few long, agonizing minutes, we get to know the crew of Super Train. Here are some choice highlights from some of them. George, red carpet time. Put that back in the jug, Mama. I'll be back for it later. Okay. Colbert. <laughs> bang, bang, Davy. I could have blown dried you to smithereens. Very fast, Bobby. Very fast. After one final once-over, the conductor lets all of the dongs into his automobile. The hysteric inaugural run of Super Train from New York to Los Angeles is now ready for boarding. We then get the first piece of many plot lines in the episode. For the sake of brevity, we're only focusing on this one because it's our main plot. I know what it looked like, but I didn't skip town. Look, look, if I skipped town, would I be calling you now? Steve Lawrence plays a guy who owes the mob money. He's also working with an obnoxious casting agent, but who cares about that? Lawrence then bumps into a lady with a fur coat and a Long Island-ish accent who is holding a briefcase with a lot of money in it. They flirt a little before they go their separate ways. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. It was really my fault. I wasn't looking where it was going in so well. I dropped it. Looks like you're putting some kid through college by yourself. Oh. <laughs> what? Ah, nothing. I'm sorry. Oh, Fur Coat okay. Lady is revealed to be the lover of your standard TV movie tough guy. He seems like your typical, level-headed, legitimate businessman. What took you so long, huh? I've been working for a magazine with avocados in it. That's what they eat in California, you know. Avocados. I hate avocados. Fur Coat Lady tries to calm him down with Care Bear levels of enthusiasm. It doesn't go well. Honey, look at this. There's a discotheque and a swimming pool and a beauty park. You think I care, huh? Meanwhile, in the first of many meanwhiles, we see some awkward flirting between the train's public relations guy and a VIP who happens to be Keenan Wynn's granddaughter. See, this compartment belongs to the chairman of the board of Supertrain. <laughs> and I happen to be the granddaughter of that chairman of the board. My name is Barbara Root. Since you're here, you can put those in the closet for me. I uh, certainly will do that, Miss After one last once-over of the set pieces that could have easily bought NBC another season of Sanford and Son, Supertrain finally departs from the station. While the train pulls away, we should probably take this moment to talk about the discified music that this show has. Spoiler alert number two, it's going to get very annoying very fast. And for that, we have legendary TV music composer Bob Cobert to thank. Don't worry, folks. He still gets praise from us for the theme to the $25,000 pyramid. But we're telling you now, the constant waka-chicka you'll be hearing will get to be tiresome. Moving on, somebody plants a bomb in a suitcase that looks similar to Lawrence's. The perfect time to take an act break. Act two begins with Mr. Conductor. And remember, this is Mr. Conductor talking. I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about. No, not that one. The guy from 16 Candles. Anyway, we begin with him chewing out the PR guy for making moves on Keenan Wynn's granddaughter. If you lay so much as one finger on Mr. Root's granddaughter, you 
are a dead man, Noonan. Meanwhile, back at Plot A, Lawrence discovers a briefcase that doesn't belong to him. Just as another shady figure in proper 1950s gangster attire passes him in the hall. Uh, Porter. Yes, just a minute. Somebody left this here by mistake. Doesn't belong to me. Oh, yes, sir. I'll take care of it. Okay. Oh, excuse me. I said I'm sorry. Let's skip over this scene in the bar car due to lack of anything interesting happening. And jump to where Lawrence and Fur Co-Girl meet up for a second time. And it's also here where we get properly introduced. We haven't formally met. My name is Mike Post. This is my friend Rick. No last names. Oh, Cindy Chapel. I'm going to ignore the fact that Lawrence's character was apparently named after the single greatest TV music composer of all time. Because chances are, it was probably a coincidence anyway. And besides, his music on this show would have been a million times better than Bob Coburt's. But I digress. The guy from Sledgehammer returns with the bombed briefcase saying that he couldn't find the owner. After resting it on the side of the train, Lawrence accidentally knocks it over, just in time for Fur Coat Girl to watch it explode. It just went boom, like a bomb. Meanwhile, over at Plot B, Fur Coat Girl sums up what she just saw for her calm, restrained lover. The reporter was giving this guy a briefcase and it fell off the platform and poof, Jack. Wait a minute. Who else saw this happen? Nobody, Jack. Nobody. Just me. I don't want you to talk to anyone about that. You understand? Sure. Why not? Just do what I tell you, okay? After a night of wondering what choices she made to wind up with a guy like that, the next day dawns. In the back of the train's inexplicable workout center, Lawrence and his traveling buddy, played by Don Meredith, relax in a steam room and discuss last night's near-death experience. I think somebody's trying to kill me. Come on, Mike. You're not talking about that girl last night with that cockeyed story about a bomb. I don't think it's that cockeyed. Oh, Mike, you gotta be kidding. I mean, that's the kind of girl that reads cornflake boxes. Just as they're about to take part in their next near-death experience. Back in there! Hello! Oh! oh. oh. Panda, will you reach? Hello! Oh. Hey! Hey! Panda, will you? Hello! Oh. The heat continues to rise at the end of Act 2. As Act 3 begins... Lawrence and Dandy Don are trapped in a steam room, just in time for a crew member to get them both out. May I offer you gentlemen a glass of ice water? Lawrence is starting to become a little suspicious as to what's going on after spotting 50s gangster again. At that moment, Lawrence and Dandy Don hatch a plan, just in time for Fur Coat Girl to make another appearance and become their third wheel. So what if the train pulls out and he's not on it? How are we going to do that? Oh, we got to get somebody to help us. Terrific. Who's that going to be? Hi. We then cut to a brief stopover in the middle of nowhere on the train route, while Keenan Wynn drones on about how great this super train will be until the show is inevitably retooled. Lawrence is watching his back as he and the 50s gangster are near each other. Lawrence leads the gangster to a train station restroom as Fur Coat Girl kicks off the plan. I can't get this thing open and well i've got to get it open because my costume is in there and i thought maybe you could help me could you help me just enough of a distraction for lawrence and dandy don to lock 50s gangster in a trunk all seems to have gone according to plan meanwhile as the train departs a train station employee accidentally lets out 50s Gangster, only to find out that he's not actually who we thought he was. And hilarity, or what passes for it on this show, 
ensues at the end of Act 3. Oh, no! I got a sales convention in L.A. All my samples are on that train! My samples! Stop that train! Hey! Stop that train! Act 4 begins with Fur Coat Girl getting questioned by her very peaceful lover, while we're questioning why this turned into a vintage Lifetime TV movie all of a sudden. Those guys have got problems. Hang around them, you'll have to get hurt. What are you talking Don't ask me any more questions! Meanwhile, more pointlessness between Keenan Wynn's granddaughter and the public relations guy. So, skip it. As we move on to something truly horrifying. Disco Fever! During this cluster hump of a scene, we're introduced to an ex-football player who, spoiler alert number three, plays a pivotal role later on. I want you to meet Al Roberts. Al Roberts used to play a little flanker back for the 49ers. This is Mike Post. Mike, how you doing? What a flesh. What do you mean he used to play a little? This man was terrific. Oh, I mean, all the evidence look <laughs> Meanwhile, fur co-girl tries to sneak out of her bunker on wheels so she can actually enjoy her trip for once, which she does after Lawrence bumps into her once more. I, uh... I could be persuaded to sit down. That is, if somebody would ask. Please, I'd like that. All the while, the level-headed lover gets wise to where she went, and he confronts both her and Lawrence in the disco car. But Lawrence convinces her to stay, which she does. Just in time for... More Disco Fever! Okay, look, we may be in hell, but even we aren't that cruel, so I'll spare you. Lawrence and Fur Coat Girl eventually get closer as he walks her back to her den of doom with more Lifetime TV dialogue. You're afraid of him, aren't you? Jack? No, no, I'm not afraid of Jack. I've got the wrong idea. Jack really cares for me. He really does. I, I gotta go. Fur Coat Girl reluctantly returns to her cabin when you-know-who shows up. Now, perhaps after being in a disco car for such a long time, maybe the two of them can have a reasonable and rational discussion over the future of their relationship, where things are going, or perhaps... Honey? Hi, Jack. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Is it too early to chime for the violence circle? Thanks for that. Look, I know that scene was for obvious dramatic effect, but even for 1970s standards, slapping somebody around like that is totally unacceptable. More so, we mentioned a major blizzard the night this show aired, so chances are this might have been the point where people changed the channel over to the Jeffersons or 8 is Enough. But I digress. The point is... Abuse to women is wrong. And those who do that deserve a front row seat to the real hell. Moving on. After all of that, Lawrence is strolling down the train when he tries to get to the next car over from the train's swimming pool. Yes, a swimming pool on a train. Just think about that for a second. As he's trying to make his way to the next car, he suddenly gets knocked out. All the while, dandy drunken Don notices Lawrence floating in the pool, which can be seen from the Disco car? Look at old crazy pal of mine. What the hell long you think he'll be able to stay down? Okay, clearly the show wasn't too specific on the schematics of the train, but the more I keep telling myself it's just a TV show, suspend your disbelief, the more I can buy just how awkward this set design is sometimes. Act 5 begins with Lawrence getting rescued. All while Dandy Don gives us something that could be one of Telehell's future ringtones. 
goes the bad air, in comes the good. Out goes the bad air, in comes the good. Out this goes, goes on for a few air. seconds too many, until... What, what happened? Oh, and Wally fished you out of the pool, old buddy. Lucky I spotted you. I guess this kind of makes us even for the steam room. Lost in the hoopla of the Somebody's Trying to Kill Steve Lawrence story is a sub-subplot involving his casting agent lady friend and an unnecessary fistfight with George Hamilton. So who cares? Whoa, 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 hold it. Don't fast forward too far. This is actually a plot point. The fight continues as Super Train goes through a tunnel. And once they emerge... That's a knife in it. <laughs> He's got a knife in it. <laughs> Things get a little trickier when a detective arrives on the scene. I know all this must sound very bizarre to you. That you're right about Post. I didn't kill Brad Lyons. No, I did. Could have been all right, all right, both of you. Meanwhile, tough guy McWife Slapper is trying to understand the situation himself. Who got on the train back there? It was a federal investigator, Mr. Fisk. He's looking into the killing. What are you talking about? All I know is there was a big ruckus up in the club car, and one of the movie people got himself killed. Can I get you folks anything? For a coat girl leaves the cabin in distress, only to be reunited with Lawrence for the end of Act 5. Mike! Cindy. Cindy, what's wrong? I thought you were dead. I heard somebody was killed, and I thought it was you. I thought you were dead. No, no I'm okay. I'm fine. Believe me, I'm fine. Act 6 starts with the detective finding out something rather interesting about Lawrence's Mike Post. Something that doesn't have to do with him writing TV theme songs. This is Riley, Treasury. You asked for a rundown on a Mike Post? He's one of ours. One of your what? He testified for us. We gave him a new identity to protect him from the mob. All right, now, what was his name before? What's your need to know? He says somebody's trying to kill him. Not good enough. Of course, for the sake of this being a TV show from the 1970s, it would be incomplete without some sort of wacky misunderstanding. Post, if you're level with me, I'm going to feel a lot better about this whole thing. Now, who are you? What do you mean, who am I? I'm Mike Post. What, what do you want? You want to see identification? Look, driver's license, credit cards. That's Mike Post, right? I got a hand at the Treasury. They do a damn good job over there. So see if you can follow this. The detective thinks this Mike Post is involved with the mob, while Lawrence's Mike Post thinks the detective is talking about the mob that he's currently in trouble with. Thing is, they're talking about two different mobs. And I just made myself dizzy. Remind me, what show came on after this? yeah, I'll settle for an episode of Quincy after this is said and done. And I don't even like Quincy. But I don't hate it either. Anyway, moving on. The detective wants to drop Lawrence off at the next station. And he wants to take Fur Coat Girl with her. And it is here where we get possibly the stupidest bit of dialogue in the episode, hands down. Not stupid as in badly written, mind you, but rather... Well... <laughs> Just, just listen. No, you really don't want to stay with me. Now, if you're ever going to leave, now's the time to do it. Cindy. Okay, okay, I'll come. But I've got to tell Jack first. No, I, I don't think that's such a good idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, I have to. I just couldn't go without telling him. <sighs> okay, but I better go with you. I want to do this by myself. Are you out of your fucking mind? This is a guy that has slapped her, yelled at her, slapped her, forced her to stay in her cabin, slapped her, pretty much treated her like shit for the entire episode, and slapped her. And now she's gonna ask this rabid wolverine of a human being to leave? 
But don't get me wrong, it's great that she's trying to stand up for herself. But the only way this can possibly be pulled off is if the guy suddenly does a 180 and let her go. That said, you know he's not gonna do that because he's a goddamn wife-beating asshole. Don't believe me? Here's how the conversation went. You can't stop me, Jack. Even if you belt me, I'm still gonna go. Sorry, Jack. He wants me. He wants you, huh? Yeah. What about what I want, huh? What about Ernie? Before he got killed, he told me to take good care of you. I think I've taken real good care of you. Don't do that, Jack, please. Remember he told you to, to stick with me? Your brother was a beautiful person. Baby, please don't leave me. I, I really need you. I've been so tightened. I need you, honey. And sure enough, thanks to Mr. Asshole's powers of persuasion, and just as Mr. Asshole heads to the baggage car to make sure Lawrence is knocked off once and for all, he drops his passport, which happens to have the name Mike Post written into it. Put two and two together, and we realize that, uh, Mr. Asshole is an asshole, and also a murderer. You're the one who's been trying to kill him all along, aren't you? Mm, yeah. No, I haven't, but I'm gonna kill him now. Oh, no. No, I won't let you. <laughs> Shut up! Lawrence gets into the baggage car only to find out that the detective is now a human suitcase. And then, as a twist, nobody saw coming or cared to have seen coming. Remember the ex-football player we saw for about five seconds half a lifetime ago? Not you, Al. You were a ball player. Well, why me? What do you want to kill me for? You mean you don't really know, huh? No! Well, I'm afraid I can't help you, old buddy. I'm just paid to do a job. Yeah, he's working with Mr. Asshole. Or, because there are now two Mike Posts on the train, he's about to knock off the wrong one. Or, who the hell really cares at this point? Lawrence then gets into a random fight with a football assassin, only for evil Mike Post to enter the scene, shut the baggage door, and, oh God, and leave Lawrence hanging outside the train while it's in motion. <sighs> okay, folks. This was the moment that we pinned for you earlier in the show. The part where the Today Show mentioned this little tidbit. It can go 200 miles an hour, which means if somebody popped out of a hatch at full speed, it'd be blown away. And they've got the special effect for that, too. The past 80 minutes of this train wreck have exhausted me to a point where if I now have to explain why it's physically impossible for a person to cling on a moving train that travels at 200 miles per hour, let alone what is considered to be a federally regulated speed on normal trains, my brains would turn to oatmeal and then would be eaten up so there'd be no brains left to form a coherent thought. So with that, we've consulted prestigious German scientist Dr. Carl von Heinsheimer to explain to us why this scene alone should have been the reason why NBC could have passed on this show, but didn't. Doctor? Ah, yes. Well, according to my research, being on top of the train is the same as riding in a car. You are already moving at the same speed as the train, so you should not be phased by the movement as long as the train does not break or accelerate extremely abruptly. Now, in the case of the super train, that possibility becomes increasingly impossible due to the fact that, as you stated earlier, the train is traveling at a top speed of 200 miles an hour. To put that in perspective, 
a 747 jet airplane reaches top speeds of nearly 600 miles an hour while cruising at less than Mach 1. Not to mention the fact that if one were to be secured on the outside of the plane at that speed, he would likely suffer an instant case of hypothermia due to the air temperature and high atmosphere. Obviously, it would not be as extreme when grounded on Earth on a moving train, but at 200 miles an hour, we can at least guarantee a severe case of frostbite from the winds that fast. You also have to factor in turbulence, but this is a case-by-case -case factor, so it may or may not affect your abilities. While some stunts may be impossible, the actual fight on the top of the train may easily take place. Unlike the scene we are about to go through here on the super train, when everybody should have just flown off VC in a matter of seconds anyway. Thank you, Doctor. Anything else to add before our minds melt over this scene? Yeah, do you, uh, do you validate the parking? Yeah, you'll have to see Debbie at the reception desk on the greed floor, just uh, over to the elevator there. All right, thanks, Doctor. It's always nice to have a visitor around here. Now then, with all that in mind, here's how batshit insane this scene is. The final act begins with the train's engineer, who I swear used to play Matt Houston back in the 80s, He's rambling on about how fast he's taken other trains in the past. It was 1940 and 3. Never will forget it. Pushed that old gutless coffee pot to 105. Set a new record on the Albuquerque run. Just then, a windswept Lawrence finds his way to the top of the train, with evil Mike Post tailing him... ...and shooting him while the train is in motion? Uh, hang on, let me see if I can catch the doctor before he leaves. Guten Tag. Hey doctor, uh, before you go, there was one other scene we forgot. Uh, the bad guy is chasing Steve Lawrence on the train and shooting at him with a gun at the same 200 mile an hour speed. Now certainly that too defies the laws of physics, right? Yeah, yeah, that's sort of a dicey area, especially at 200 miles an hour. It would be like aiming into an F5 tornado. You see, air resistance scales as velocity cubed, so a headwind will slow down the bullet more than still air. The effect is too small to have any practical impact. However, shooting across the wind is definitely a problem. For example, the ballistic chart for a common target load includes a 10 mile an hour crosswind pushing the bullet 3.1 inches off target at 200 yards and 7.4 inches off the target at 300 yards. Allowing for wind drift is a critical skill for long-range rifle shooting. Trying to shoot while moving at 200 miles per hour means the guy attacking Steve Lawrence is practically wasting his ammo in this case. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Thanks for clearing that up. Uh, did you find Debbie? Yeah, they told me she relocated to the limo circle. I'll take it from there, don't worry. Okay, very well. Thank you, Doc. Nice guy. It's a shame, though, that he was forced to work with Hitler against his will. Anyway, <sighs> continuing. From the outside, Lawrence gets the attention of Dandy Don, who immediately tries to get the crew to stop the train. Stop the train! Somebody stop the train! Much to Keenan Wynn's joy and or dismay. You gotta save him! Stop the train! Stop the train, hell! You wanna save your friend, don't you, son? TC! Relentlessly! Hang on to your head, Sam. We then get to see a couple of clips that show why putting in a dining room, lounge, 
disco, swimming pool, workout center, hair salon, ballroom, golf course, shopping mall, used car lot, sulfuric acid treatment plant, and three ring circus all going at 200 miles an hour is a bad idea as things begin to fall apart. Just in time for Evil Mike Post to meet his due. And for the super train to come to a stop, creating an even bigger mess. And Dandy Don comes to pry Lawrence off of the bars that he was holding outside of the train. Go, buddy, let go. I did! I did! The super train makes it to the station. And we get this brief and convoluted explanation as to why all of this wound up happening in the first place. You mean Fisk wasn't his real name? See, unfortunately, Mike, the past couple of years, the safe new identities we've given people haven't turned out to be all that safe. So we figured that he decided to protect himself. Now, I think his first move was to bribe a programmer to feed your ID into our computer. But why, why me? Just lucky, I guess. <laughs> so there you have it. A guy was nearly murdered no less than half a dozen times because of a computer glitch. And they say Skynet couldn't happen. <laughs> Please. To wrap up this boondoggle, we brush past that casting agent story that nobody cared about. And then we finally get to the end of our story where we finally meet the big Ed that we've been hearing about all show. When you said you didn't want to ride to the bank, I figured you got it on you. Yeah, I uh, figured you'd figure that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the money. Uh, and just when Lawrence tries to hem and haw his way out of it, fur coat girl emerges with a briefcase ex machina. Where on earth did you get all this money? Oh, the money. Oh, that's the money Jack took from the mob. How much is there? Oh, I don't know. More than I can count. You think you got enough in there for a for honeymoon? Oh. And on that merciful note, the first episode comes to a merciful end. But not before an epilogue that pretty much telegraphs what the network executives that were watching this were thinking at the exact same time that we were. I uh, realize, Mr. Root, that Super Train's maiden run has not met with all of your expectations. Well, now that's very perceptive of you, Mr. Flood. Is the staff assembled? Yes, sir. Let's get on with it. Hurry up for that class! The man wants this thing ready to roll in four hours. And for the love of all that is holy, that was the first episode of Super Train. And quite frankly, even though this is episode four of our show, I have never looked forward to this moment than I have right now. Which tracks does Super Train pull into the Grand Central Station known as Telehel? All aboard, as the nine circles are ready to depart! Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery! Hands down, without question, the show pulls out of the Greed Station first. Not only because of the obscenely expensive price tag, but because NBC was also greedy with eagerness, in the sense that they wanted to rush things out as soon as possible. And the proof of that rush job is right there on the screen. Tied into the greed was the tremendous hype machine that was powering it whether people wanted to see the show or not. There was that Today Show piece you heard at the beginning, but also promos for the show running every hour on the hour trying to force the show down people's throats. So we'll be sure the dining car has a lot of gluttony to go around. 
At the same time, this was a show that, with the exception of Dan Curtis's production company being involved, was something that was being produced on the network's dime, and all but put the network out of business, meaning that we get a departure on the treachery track. Especially because Silverman felt so sure that this would be a hit that perhaps going against his judgment might have spelt the end of careers for those that defied him. So, everybody went along with it begrudgingly. But because of the staying of this course, the viewers responded the only way they knew how. By changing the channel either to ABC, CBS, or syndication. Ergo, the wrath of the audience was made clear. And before we forget, a certain slap in the face two-thirds of the way through makes way for an automatic birth in the violence circle. Seriously, hitting women is about 4,982 shades of wrong. I don't care if it was done for dramatic effect, you just don't do that, either in reality or fantasy. Super Train earns five out of nine circles of telehell. The ironic part of the story is that, having sat through the pilot episode and also forcing myself to watch whatever other episodes were on YouTube, this probably would have been better if they just aired the two-hour movie all by itself and be done with it. On the whole, however, you know the phrase, worth every penny? Well, keeping in mind that there was a lot of inflation in the late 70s, this wasn't even worth 12 cents. Or at least, not at first. Thanks to the blizzard that hit the East Coast when the show premiered, the show generated enough of a rating so that it actually beat some, but not all, of its competition that night. Fortunately, ratings dropped like a rock shortly thereafter, and the show was taken off the schedule after five weeks. Then, in a fit of desperation, the show returned with a last-minute fresh coat of paint, the addition of a laugh track on some episodes, and an overall change in the mood-slash-identity crisis, complete with a new title sequence that looked like the remains of a 70s acid trip. The changes ultimately proved to have had the same fate as Resistance to the Borg. Futility. Super Train derailed for good after nine episodes, and it proved to be a black eye in the plumage of the NBC peacock that took them years to recover from. Unfortunately, the worst was yet to come under the reign of our patron saints, for Fred Silverman had not yet begun to pluck the peacock's feathers. But for our sake, and for the fact that we need to breathe a lot of oxygen after this, let's tackle one disaster at a time. Next time on Telehell, we go way back to the early years of television and discover why we need people inspecting our consumer goods now more than ever. This same kind of dirt was made just radioactive enough to register on a Geiger counter. Until next time. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Scientific information about that batshit crazy climax on the top of the super train was verified by Quora.com. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Oh, one more thing. Just because we watch a lot of TV doesn't mean that we don't want to socialize. Look for us on Facebook and Twitter, both at Telehell Podcast. And of course, you can also go to our own page, telehell.libsyn.com. 
And don't forget to like, comment, rate, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Libsyn. Just search for Telehell.